I've made so many trips to India, personal and professional, over my long life because I found it the most fascinating nation on earth. These days I'm not permitted to go there because uh, Modi won't give me a visa, but I remember one spectacular occasion when I arrive outside the presidential palace and the BJP, then just a, a, a minor faction, were rattling the presidential gates. I was allowed in and ushered into the presence of one of the most delightful humans I have ever met, the President of India, who was the first Dalit to achieve that high office. And as I was taken to his office, it was like walking through a Gandhian theme park. There wasn't a wall without a picture of him, a passageway without a sculpture. And of course, it was absolutely the same outside. Iconographic images of Gandhi everywhere. Streets named after him. The veneration was palpable. Well, this year marks the 75th anniversary of the Mahatma's assassination. But what's remarkable is just how different the feeling is within India towards the father of the nation. The rise of Hindu nationalist BJP, the people rattling the gates on that occasion I mentioned, has seen a rewriting of history and a growing hostility towards Gandhi and his pacifist ideals. Yet if there was ever a time we needed a revival of Gandhism, it is now. Ramachandra Guha is considered both the greatest living biographer of Gandhi and the greatest chronicler of post-independent India. He also is a very important public intellectual on all matters, including the environment. A third edition of his seminal book, India After Gandhi, has just been released to coincide with the anniversary. Now, it's been a while since I had the pleasure of talking to this fine fellow. Ram, welcome back. Great to be back with you. Before we get into what's happening now, let's get the facts straight about Gandhi. He was born uh, Mohandas Gandhi in October 1869. Well, he was born in a upper middle class family. He was born in a princely state in Western India, which was ruled indirectly by the British. It's a small state on the coast of what is now Gujarat. And five years later, his father moved inland uh, to work for another small prince in the town called Rajkot. Then he goes to London. He, he completes high school in Rajkot and then goes to London uh, to qualify as a lawyer. And it was the first of many interesting and educating and life-transforming journeys he was to make. I like the way he promised his mum to abstain from meat, alcohol and women while he was in the tempting city of London. Yeah, and in the family home in Rajkot, which is now a museum, uh, I was shown the room where he's supposed to have made that promise. You see, his father had died, Philip, uh, when he was in his teens, and he had to persuade his mother uh, to give him permission to go far away. We're talking about the 1880s when England was very, very far, a long distance away from, from India, you know, not just geographically, but also culturally. Uh, so he makes that promise, and uh, essentially he adheres to it. Now, at the age of 22, he's called to the bar, but instead he chooses 
to go back to India, albeit briefly. Yeah. So I think he always intended to go back. By this time, he was married and had one child. And he goes back to India and tries to establish himself as a lawyer. Uh, first in the great city of Bombay and then in his hometown, Rajkot. Now, Philip, uh, for those of us who think of Gandhi as a very successful politician, it might surprise them, uh, surprise your listeners to know he was a very indifferent speaker and failed to make an impact on the Bombay bar and was actually a briefless barrister. And he was rescued from obscurity by an invitation from South Africa where... Uh, Two Gujarati merchants were in a dispute and wanted someone who was both trained in the English law and knew their native language, Gujarati, to help them settle their, uh, you know, their, their, their dispute. But you make the point that here he is, age 23, he arrives in South Africa and immediately faces discrimination. Yes, you know, South Africa in the late 1890s uh, was ruled uh, by the British and where, where Gandhi was, which was just the, the province of Natal, now called KwaZulu-Natal, was controlled by the British. And uh, the Indians faced discrimination. Was the Africans who were uh, even below in the social hierarchy faced much greater discrimination. Uh, but Gandhi, who was uh, well-born in Gujarat, did not face discrimination in London, was uh, stunned by the discrimination he faced. So uh, he finds that Indians have to live on different streets from the Europeans. They can't open shops. Uh, where Europeans live, uh, certain jobs are denied to them. And from a lawyer, he becomes quite quickly an activist. And it is here in South Africa that his idea, his ideal of nonviolent protest is born. Uh, yes, Philip. I mean, there are several things that are born in South Africa. But before I come to nonviolence, which is the most enduring and, and the one that he's most famous for, it's in South Africa that he discovers he's an Indian. Now, for argument's sake, if he had succeeded as a lawyer in Bombay, almost all his clients would be upper caste Gujarati Hindus like himself. Uh, it's by going to South Africa that he discovers that his homeland is one of extraordinary religious and linguistic diversity. His first patron is a Muslim. His closest friend turns out to be Jewish. So that's one aspect of his, uh, his, shall we say, his philosophical learning. The second aspect is the interreligious aspect. So I talked about his Jewish friend, but he also had Christian friends, Muslim friends, Parsi friends, even atheist friends. So he is growing all the time in the diaspora in a way in which he probably would not have at home. Now, and then, of course, there is nonviolence, which you talk about. And it's really interesting that the idea of nonviolence was born on the 11th of September, 1906, when there was a particularly obnoxious racial law that was proposed by the government of South Africa, and the Indians gathered to oppose it in Johannesburg Empire Theatre. And on this 11th of September, uh, which was 95 years before the other and more infamous 9-11, uh, which destroyed the World Trade Centers in New York, uh, Gandhi decided that he and his colleagues would oppose these laws non-violently, uh, by coming out in the street peacefully, uh, by courting arrest, by not obeying the racial discrimination that the government mandated, but doing so peacefully without harming anyone. Now, I, I say this is a striking coincidence that 95 years apart, you have two models of political protest, one in, involving suffering yourself to shame your oppressor, and the other of course, promoting violence and terror. 
uh, supposedly to advance your cause. It is an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of synchronicity, I guess. Okay, he spends over 20 years in South Africa, comes back, and how does he get to be involved in the struggle for Indian independence, Ram? So he'd been away two decades, and I'll just say one last thing about his term in South Africa, uh, so that we know that though he was a great man, he was also a flawed man. Uh, Though he spent two decades in South Africa, he had little time for the Africans. And in fact, he started out with the conventional Indian racial prejudice and hostility towards Africans, regarding them as unclean and backward. He slowly outgrew that prejudice Uh, in the years he was in South Africa, but it's striking that he did not even make a single African friend. So he was still growing, he was still imperfect. But let me return to the circumstances of his coming back to his homeland in 1915. Well, he never talks about why he came back. He was a successful lawyer, he was an admired activist, he was the most famous Indian in, in South Africa. Why did he come back? He never talks about it. And my surmise is twofold. First, he wanted his four children to get a properly Indian education and to get to know their homeland. And second, he felt that uh, he needed a larger theatre for his political and philosophical ambitions. He succeeded in becoming the leader of 150,000 Indians in the diaspora. And now he wanted to make a play for becoming the leader back home. And there was a nascent freedom struggle. The Indian National Congress had been formed 30 years ago. Uh, There was a rising wave of protests against British colonial rule. And I believe that he came back because he wanted to be part of this. You make the point that he took several years travelling around to understand India before putting himself forward as a a leader of the freedom struggle. Yes, and I think this was uh, partly the advice given to him by his mentor, who was a great scholar and reformer from the western city, Indian city of Pune, called Gopal Krishna Gokhale, who told Gandhi, you've been away for two decades. When you come back, travel around the country for a full year and do not make a single political utterance in that time. And he followed his mentor's advice faithfully. You know, uh, his second home became a, a second-class railway compartment. And I think you have travelled around the Indian countryside yourself by train so that you know what a, a experience it is that was bewildering because of its diversity and also extremely educative. So he travels around India, gets to know parts of the country he had only known as places on the map. In 1917, which is two years after he returns, uh, he organizes a peasant struggle in Bihar in, in the east. The next year, he gets involved in his home state of Gujarat in fighting for workers' rights. And by 1919, uh, he's been in India long enough. He's made friends. He's uh, cultivated a cadre of devoted associates and colleagues and followers. And in 1919, he launches uh, his first major campaign, which is against an obnoxious piece of colonial legislation, outlawing all kinds of dissent. Even peaceful dissent was outlawed by this. He, in many ways, he was cutting edge. In some ways, he wasn't. He, uh, well, he... He makes the Congress admit women and he attacked the idea of intouchability, although, as you point out, not to the same extent as others. Yes. So um, a a small correction that the Congress had admitted women before Gandhi, but when Gandhi becomes the leader, 
more women joined and assumed important leadership roles. So in 1925, at Gandhi's insistence, a well-known female poet called Sarojini Naidu is made president of the Congress Party. Now, this is a time, 1925, where I dare say uh, they probably even weren't even political branches in Australia or New Zealand or England or, or France who were female. Uh, there was no remotely no possibility of a Jacinda Ardern or, uh, you know, a Margaret Thatcher. So in a deeply conservative patriarchal society, Gandhi tries to get women into public life and assume important role in politics. Uh, so that's one aspect of his reform agenda. Gently, not radically, not frontally, but gently, incrementally uh, challenging the conservative patriarchal biases of Indian society. And the second aspect which you mentioned is seeking to end the absolutely obnoxious practice of untouchability, which was intrinsic to Hindu society, uh, where one-fifth of the population was basically treated as akin to the way slaves were treated in the American South, you know, as, as, as polluting, as uh, subhuman, assigned the most degrading and inhuman tasks, paid a pittance, and not allowed to live with any kind of dignity. And then Gandhi you know, gets involved in the campaign to end untouchability, again, as with his approach to gender equality, uh, not frontally and radically, but incrementally and slowly. But yet, it's quite a considerable move for an upper-caste Hindu to acknowledge how awful this practice uh, of his fellow Hindus was. The foundation myth of the Chinese Communist Party is the long march. One of the foundation myths of modern India is the salt march, Tell us about Gandhi and his immensely long walk of protest. In 1929, the Congress meets, its annual session is in the town of Lahore, the great city of Lahore, now uh, part of Pakistan. And they decide that they must launch a movement for complete independence. And it is left to Gandhi to decide the means of protest. And he returns to his ashram in Ahmedabad and uh, then mulls over what to do. And then he decides that the law prohibiting ordinary Indians from making salt must be opposed. So by this law, the state had a monopoly on salt, an article used by every Indian in their diet. And he said, I will march to the sea and make some salt myself and break the law. Now, Gandhi was, in his own way, uh, a very adroit manipulator of public opinion. He was a prolific journalist himself, and he edited a newspaper in South Africa, and then again in India, which was printed in several languages, not just in English. And by the time the Salt March comes, uh, there are a lot of foreign journalists in India, uh, you know, including American journalists. And there's also, uh, you know, film has come. So he knows that people will follow this march. You know, Gandhi is in, by now in his early 60s, elderly by the standards of that day, and with his young companions, mostly younger men, he marches slowly. Uh, it's a three-week march to the sea from the town of Ahmedabad. That every day they march. They camp in a village where Gandhi addresses a public meeting about the evils of untouchability, the importance of Hindu-Muslim harmony, and so on and so forth. And the press is covering this. And the Viceroy, Lord Irvin, later to become Lord Halifax, uh, is absolutely confused by what's going on. Now, again, hypothetically, uh, what if Irvin had just arrested Gandhi the day he began his march? You and I may not have been having this conversation. 
because you know it, it would not have got this extraordinary attention national and global attention time magazine's correspondent covered it and wrote an absolutely mocking report philip saying how can this wizened old man with bandy legs <laughs> presume to take on the british empire and they actually say uh, you know <laughs> that on the first day this old man collapsed on his feet uh, into the arms of one of his followers now that's how time magazine began uh, the discussion of the march but but by the end of 1930 uh, they you know they they made gandhi the man of the year time magazine's man of the year Little little wonder that uh, Churchill referred to Gandhi as a Hindu Mussolini. Now, things reach a climax. It's the early 40s, Britain's at war, and Gandhi is demanding immediate independence for India. You know, this is one of the most complicated and difficult episodes in modern Indian history. And it's important for your listeners, many of whom would have had grandparents or great-grandparents who fought in the war and would have uh, uh, quite a few of whom would have grown up uh, regarding Churchill as a great hero, uh, which in many ways, not always he was, and regarding Hitler as evil, which in always he was. It's important for us to recognize the context. In 1939, war breaks out between Britain and Germany. And when war breaks out, Gandhi goes and meets the Viceroy, who by this time is not... Uh, Irvin, but a Scottish peer called Lillithgow, and tells him, you're fighting this war for freedom. We will join you in the war effort so long as you assure us independence afterwards. Not immediate independence, but independence afterwards. That's what he said in 1939. And for two years, two and a half years, the Congress and the British are negotiating. And the, the Congress says, we will even abandon the Gandhian credo of nonviolence. Gandhi will be nonviolent, but we will recruit Indian soldiers for the war against Hitler because we recognize how truly evil the Nazis are. And by this time, Nehru, Jawaharlal Nehru, Gandhi's political heir, had visited China and had seen how brutal Japanese imperialism was. So he recognized that were India to come under the jackboot of either the Japanese or the Germans, it would be even more dreadful than being ruled by the British. So the Congress under Nehru and Gandhi tells the Viceroy, we will join the war effort, even help you recruit troops so long as A, you form a national government today in which capable Indians can help in the administration, with you, the Viceroy, the British Viceroy at the head, and B, once the war ends with a success for the Allies, you grant India independence. Because if you say you're fighting for the independence of the small nations of Europe, what about us? Now, I think that's an absolutely reasonable and justified demand that the Congress made. But the Viceroy was deeply insensitive, and so was Churchill, who was a diehard imperialist. And as Prime Minister, as he famously said, I have not become Prime Minister to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. So after two and a half years of this unsuccessful bid, the Congress launches a movement called Quit India, because they become so desperate by this time that they have no other option. Gandhi was heartbroken by the violence that uh, followed petition and I'm old enough to remember him going on that fast to, uh, to try and stop the religious riots and communal violence. Yes, uh, absolutely. You know, uh, there were actually two fasts and two marches. So in 1946, when the riots first broke out, which is before partition, Gandhi marches through the villages of eastern Bengal and Bihar 
trying to douse the flames of interreligious harmony. And then in 1947, after independence and partition, he fasts in Calcutta first in September 1947. And then he moves to Delhi, where he fasts again in January. And shortly after the second fast, he's murdered by a Hindu fanatic. Now, it's time in a moment to move on to uh, what's happening in India right now in relation to Gandhi and Gandhiism. But first, briefly, who killed him and why? So he was killed by a young man called Nathuram Godse, who uh, had been a member and was in fact probably still a member of a paramilitary organisation devoted to constructing a Hindu theocratic state in India, the RSS, uh, which is now extremely powerful in India and from whose ranks Narendra Modi himself emerges, that at that stage, a small fanatical rising organization feeding on the grief of the, and anger of the refugees, the Hindu refugees who had come across from Pakistan in the wake of partition. And they were angry with Gandhi for not doing more to stop partition. And after partition happened, they did not want Muslims to live in India. They wanted to either kill every Muslim who was there or drive them all to Pakistan. And here was Gandhi saying, Pakistan might be an Islamic state, but India is not a Hindu republic and Muslims and Christians and Sikhs and Parsis have equal rights as, as Hindus. And he was willing to stake his life for these equal rights for religious minorities, which uh, the RSS could not abide. And this young man, decided then to take matters in his own hands with, and with a few associates, went and killed Gandhi uh, in Delhi on the evening of 30th January 1948. I'm talking to Ramachandra Guha, rock star historian and biographer of Gandhi, assassinated 75 years ago. Now, let's move into the current situation where Gandhi's legacy is being rewritten. Tell me about the, uh, well, you refer to it as WhatsApp history. What are the claims being made? Well, uh, there's several claims that are made. One claim is that had Indians adopted violent means instead of nonviolence, independence would have come quicker. That's the first claim. The second claim is had Indians adopted violent means, it would have made them more stronger, more masculine, more prepared to take on enemies like Pakistan and China after independence. That's the second claim. A third claim is that Gandhi made a mistake in appointing Nehru as his political successor because Nehru was too soft on the Muslims and too westernized in his intellectual and personal orientation. And of course, beyond all of this uh, is the fact that uh, the RSS and the Hindu right generally believes in the Hindu theocratic state. They believe uh, passionately in a kind of Hindu Pakistan in which Muslims and even Christians will be second-class citizens. And they detest Gandhi precisely uh, for Gandhi's emphasis on religious equality. And now the other aspects of why they dislike Gandhi, I think uh, uh, his open-mindedness, his ability to befriend people from other countries. Gandhi was not a xenophobe, uh, whereas the, the Hindu right are kind of revanchist chauvinists, not dissimilar to Xi Jinping in China or Trump in America or the Brexiteers in Britain. People who think their country, their religion, their culture has all the answers to the problems of humankind. So there are multiple reasons, philosophical, personal, political, civilizational, 
why they dislike Gandhi. Now, we, we, we have to confront a paradox here. BJP members hail Gandhi's assassin as a patriot. There's this absolute full-scale onslaught on his reputation. But at the same time, Modi isn't overtly involved in this. He's even written articles praising Gandhi. Please explain that. You see, Modi is an incredibly clever man. You know, uh, among the range of uh, populist authoritarians uh, who have come to prominence in the last two decades, I think Modi is the most clever, diabolically clever, and the uh, most effective political strategist. He knows to play different audiences in different ways. And Modi recognizes that Gandhi is the Indian most admired outside India. So uh, he wants to associate with him, however superficially and selectively. So uh, when foreign visitors come, he takes them to Gandhi's ashram in Ahmedabad and gives them a personal guided tour of the ashram. He mentions Gandhi in his speeches abroad. Uh, but he plays this kind of double game. But uh, as I pointed out in a recent article in the Financial Times, even when he writes about Gandhi, as he did in a signed op-ed in the New York Times on the occasion of Gandhi's 150th birth anniversary, he cannot bring himself to mention the most important aspect of Gandhi's credo, Hindu-Muslim harmony. And of course, that's because he doesn't believe in it. And that's because his whole politics is based on, uh, on demonizing Muslims as not Indian enough, on, on portraying India as essentially a Hindu state uh, to be run by Hindus. So here he is confronting the cult of Gandhi. But, of course, you're more concerned about the cult of personality around Modi. Yes, uh, it, that's deeply worrying. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, uh, you know, you cannot open an Indian newspaper without him being on the front page. Our COVID certificate had Modi's photograph. Uh, next month, the Australian test team will play uh, a match at uh, the Narendra Modi Stadium in Ahmedabad. Uh, which, by the way, by allowing a stadium to be named after himself, a sports stadium in his lifetime, Modi joins the distinguished or not-so-distinguished company of Hitler, Mussolini, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi. So there's an incredibly creepy personality cult, but it's adhered to by millions of people who regard him as a Hindu emperor. They see him as the man who has finally fulfilled the dreams of the RSS and the BJP and... Hindu warriors down the centuries to make this a Hindu land. Ram, you pointed out that past Indian leaders warned about this. Gandhi himself said, it is not good for us to worship an individual. Only an ideal or a principle should be worshipped. And uh, more than Gandhi, the great uh, B.R. Ambedkar, the great uh, Dalit leader who uh, helped draft India's constitution, uh, famously said, and I'd like to just repeat two sentences of his warning when he drafted the constitution. He said, bhakti, which is uh, devotion, bhakti in religion is a route to the salvation of the soul. Bhakti in politics is a route to dictatorship. And no human being must be worshipped blindly, regardless of what their services to the nation are. And he was... Ambedkar was prophetic, saying this in 1949, because he anticipated the cult of Indira Gandhi in the 1970s and the even greater cult of Modi today. But we are not heeding these warnings, Phil. The cult becomes bigger and bigger and grander and grander with every passing month. 
I'm talking to Ramachandra Guha, extraordinary fellow, a long, long friend of the program, and I should point out the amazing fact that he has over two million followers on Twitter. Now, why on earth is Modi so popular? You know, there's several reasons. One, he's, he's completely self-made. He comes from an impoverished background. He's self-made. Unlike, shall we say, his principal political opponent, Rahul Gandhi, who's a princeling born into a political family. Uh, his father, his grandmother and his great-grandfather were all prime ministers. Uh, he is a master orator in Hindi. Modi is a master orator in Hindi, uh, uh, which is the main language spoken in India. He's a ferociously hardworking. He's a 24 by 7 politician. He is very clever at dividing his opponents. He uses social media incredibly effectively. Uh, you mentioned I have 2 million Twitter followers, of which at least 1 million uh, are Modi followers just there to ab abuse me on Twitter. So he uses social media very effectively. Uh, and also, you know, the propaganda machine of the state and publicity and all of that. And he is seen as this Hindu redeemer, as, you know, this quasi-religious messianic figure, half king, half guru, uh, in a land which has been ruled by, allegedly been ruled by Christians, as in the British, and Muslims, as in the Mughals, for too long. So we hear is our Hindus recovering their soul, their spirit, their history, their civilizational greatness, all of which is manifest in this one man, in this one selfless, hardworking, charismatic, eloquent man. It's not just the BJP who, uh, well, are decertifying Gandhi. It's also Congress because that's aiding India's democratic decline. Without question, Philip, again, uh, to quote from a recent article I wrote, I pointed out that Mahatma Gandhi, with whom we began this program, had four sons. All of them joined the freedom struggle were jailed repeatedly when the British ruled India. After India became independent in 1947, not one of them even became a member of parliament. In fact, the youngest son, Devdas, who was the most politically active, uh, was asked by Nehru to join his cabinet. He declined. He was then asked by Nehru to become ambassador to Russia in 1949. He declined. He said, I do not want to use my father's name for political gain. So the Congress of uh, Gandhi's time was not a family firm. It was composed of selfless, hardworking individuals, men and women, Hindus and Muslims, upper caste and low caste, who had worked their way up the ranks. And that's how it remained under Nehru too. And it's only after Indira Gandhi took over the Congress in the 1970s that she converted it into a family firm. While in power, the Congress has promoted cronyism, nepotism, corruption. They have undermined institutions too. So you could say that the post-Nehru Congress is a, a joint participant along with the BJP and Modi in the weakening and degrading of Indian democracy. We're talking about a government that doesn't like scrutiny. I thanked you earlier for your uh, defence of the programme and of me when we were declined a uh, visa to re-enter India. But press freedom is in freefall in your country. Yes, it is. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, and again, you know, uh, one can only blame the government and Modi and his party up to a point. 
It's also the people who are here, who are manning the press, the editors, they must stand up, they must show a spine. And they've all capitulated with virtually no exception. The areas of freedom that remain in the press are mostly in the digital space. So not in television, not in newspapers. There's a newspaper I write for in Calcutta called The Telegraph. It still is moderately critical of the government, uh, That's of, of the Modi government. That's possibly because the state government in Bengal is run by an opposition party. But uh, the Hindi press is uh, just promoting Modi and the cult of Modi day in and day out. Uh, for example, in the last two weeks, we had this controversy over uh, the Adanis, the company which, are, uh, you know, which Australians know about, about them sh- uh, share market manipulations. And uh, no uh, media house had the courage to cover these uh, allegations carefully or seriously. They just said it's an attack on India. Uh, and they said it's all foreign conspiracy and so on. So there's still some spaces remain. As I said, we are slightly freer than the Russian media, but that's not much of a consolation. And yet you're allowed to speak to me, or at least able to speak to me. Why is that? So, you know, uh, Philip, I, I'm not just allowed to speak to you. I have a column, uh, which is also translated in 10 languages. So it appears in English and it appears in 10 Indian newspapers. Now, I think... Uh, people like me are exceptional uh, in that, perhaps because we have an international reputation. So I'm allowed to speak. Arundhati Roy uh, is allowed to speak. P. Sainath, who has come on your program, uh, is allowed to speak. So a few voices in the English language media who have an international reputation are perhaps allowed to speak. But people who are braver than me, do better reporters than me and are younger than me and write in Hindi or, or, or Marathi or Gujarati, uh, are not allowed to speak. I introduced you as a passionate environmentalist, as indeed was Gandhi, who as early as 1928 wrote that God forbid that India should ever take to industrialization after the manner of the West because it would strip the world bare like locusts. He wouldn't be too happy with what's happening in his country. No, and in fact, uh, if you add China to that, India and China are together threatening to strip the world bare like locusts. And Gandhi prefaces the remarks by saying that industrialization in countries like Europe and America was enabled by access to colonies and vast unpopulated lands. And India did not have colonies of vast unpopulated lands, which meant that if it adopted the same resource-intensive, capital-intensive, energy-intensive models of economic growth, it would have to prey on its own people and its own resources. So, you know, parts of uh, India are an absolute wasteland. Uh, For example, the tribal forest areas of states like Chhattisgarh and Orissa, where mining companies have absolutely ravaged the environment and the people. But also, if you look at our cities, one of Modi's greatest failures is that he's been nine years as prime minister, and he's done nothing to address air pollution in India's capital and in other cities in northern India. You know, uh, if you look at our rivers, they're biologically dead. If you look at... uh, the depletion of groundwater aquifers, so that the Punjab, India's uh, wheat bowl, is now, you know, in grave economic crisis. So we are an environmental wasteland, and this is independent of climate change. Even if climate change was not happening, India would be an environmental disaster. Gandhi would have been caught. As we approach the end of our conversation, we must also remind ourselves that Gandhi wasn't perfect. He had some problematic views on race, on caste, on women... 
statues of Gandhi have been torn down in the US by activists who felt he saw black Africans as inferior. You know, uh, Gandhi was a racist as a young man, but he outlived his racism. And uh, by the 1920s, he was talking about people of all races as equal. He was in correspondence with the great African-American activist W.E.B. Du Bois. In the 1930s, Howard Thurman, who was a mentor of Martin Luther King, comes to meet Gandhi. Uh, and they speak about the importance of non-violence. And Gandhi says it's the Negroes, as the African-Americans who were then known, will take the message of non-violence to the world. So he starts as a racist who becomes a principled anti-racist. He starts as a, a, a patriarch who becomes uh, someone much more encouraging of equal rights for women. He starts as a high-caste Hindu who then becomes a radical opponent of caste. And I think part of Gandhi's greatness is his ability to evolve and grow. He was not perfect. Uh, I think uh, if you look at him as, as a family man, I mean, he was an indifferent husband and uh, particularly with regard to his first two sons, an overbearing and unfeeling father. You know, he made political mistakes, uh, but no one was perfect. And as George Orwell famously said when Gandhi died, compared to any other public figure of his time, how clean a smell he leaves behind. And beyond the transparency of his, his, his personal life and his personal decency, it's his ideas, Philip, that matter. His commitment to nonviolence, to dialogue, to interfaith harmony, uh, he, to environmental responsibility. These are the reasons we should remember him, not just Indians, but people all over the world. A final question. What do you think the Gandhian response to... Ukraine should be. In fact, uh, India's being very careful on this subject. See, I think nonviolence, as practiced by Gandhi, uh, as preached by Gandhi, is important within the context of a country and its democratic traditions. But when it comes to international conflict, obviously, as in the Second World War, you can't always stick to nonviolence or pacifism. With regard to the Ukraine, I think Gandhi and Nehru would have advised Modi to take the lead in bringing about an end to the war by first gently criticizing Russia for what is an act of colonial aggression, unquestionably, and secondly, you know, working much harder to uh, to bring about a peaceful resolution because India has a locus standi, a credibility that America lacks. After its misadventures in Vietnam and Iraq, no one treats America as, uh, as different from Russia. So I think I, I've written uh, columns about this too, that our position with regard to Ukraine has been deeply unfortunate. We could have played a much more proactive role in ending the conflict. Ramachandra, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Ramachandra Guha, rock star historian, biographer of Gandhi. The third edition of his much acclaimed book, India After Gandhi, is out now. And we'll have to get you back to talk about your other book, Rebels Against the Raj which came out last year. Thanks, Ram. Thank you. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.